I've been traveling through um, the letter to the Philippians that Paul has, has written, and we went through chapter one. We're now finding ourselves in chapter two, and this morning I'd like to take a look at specifically verses one and two of chapter two, although to start... I would like us to train our eyes back to verse 27 of chapter 1, and I'll read all the way through to the end of verse 4 of chapter 2. So please follow along with me. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear. In chapter 2, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is God's word. Well, just to make a a brief observation from this text that we've just read, I'd like you to notice that that um, this, this church is, is facing pressures, okay? And these pressures are pointed out both in the first part that I read and also in the second part. The first part, we see the church is facing external pressures from those that are referred to as opponents. And, um, and yet, the Lord is sustaining the Philippians not to be alarmed, but they're standing firm and striving together. So there's an external pressure that the, the church is, is facing. And then in verses 1 through 4, we see that there's also an internal strain that, that Paul is, is pointing out and that he is giving instruction on how to deal with that, how to strive for unity given that internal strain can happen within the church. Well, you don't have to go very far to find all kinds of stories of stress in the church, disunity even, and I would imagine that many of you could quickly call to mind even some of the things that you have seen in churches that you have been a part of. Back in the 1970s, the Dallas newspapers reported on a legal battle that was taking place between two factions of a local church. And so these factions could not not find resolution, 
And ultimately, they were both desiring the ownership of the facility and the property. And they couldn't, they couldn't agree, come to an agreement. This ultimately ended them up in a court of law. And interestingly enough, and very different to the judge, sent this back to the church. He refused to decide on it. He said it was not for him to decide, but it was for the church to work out. And so the church put together a council of people to begin and work through an investigation. And as they peeled back the layers, it was startling to find out what had actually begun the whole dispute. What had happened was at a church dinner, an elder had received a larger portion of ham than a child that he was sitting beside. And this caused him to um, place his, his anger on, on someone essentially in the church and it led to them ending up in, in a court of law. Now we, we may chuckle at that, but we know the sinfulness of the flesh, right? We know the, the power of the flesh even and how easily we can allow sin to overtake us. In another case, there were again two factions in a church. Both had invited preachers to come and preach on a given Sunday morning. And so both of these invited preachers, these guests, stood on the stage preaching simultaneously while the two factions were listening. Ultimately, it got so chaotic that the police had to be called. Again, this isn't surprising. We shake our heads at these things, but this, this happens in our world. Sometimes disunity is maybe not so boisterous right, doesn't make its way into the public eye, but there can be other forms of disunity in the church. For instance, an elder board can be divided on a given doctrine, the doctrine of salvation, for instance. Some uh, remaining uh, convinced of man's free will, while others are, are uh, viewing the sovereignty of God and salvation and understanding that. And so, Rather than having this issue addressed, the way they address the issue is to actually just tuck it under the carpet and remain silent on it. For unity is actually um, what we don't, the things that we don't talk about is what, what portrays then our unity to others. But this is actually not unity at all. It's, it's disunity, but it's unity in disguise, right? Cloaked in silence. And so... We have, to, we have to understand that disunity in the local church, whether it becomes public or in other instances remains hidden, but no less known to those who are part of the church, these things are a detriment to the Christian witness of the church. And not only that, but these, both of these forms of disunity, I would say, bring reproach on Christ. And so, friends, this morning we need to know that sin issues, and be reminded that sin issues disrupt church unity. And so it's not only external influences that can bring strife and division into the church, but also sin from within, when left unchecked, equally threatens the church. And we've seen these things. And we continue to see these things. 
We've seen external pressure placed on Canadian churches, uh, and they've encountered this plenty as political leaders in each province continue to try to claim authority over the terms and circumstances of Christian worship. The politics of COVID have then revealed that the majority of, Christian church, of Canadian churches have the government as God, right? They are following after Caesar. And the external pressure then placed on the church leads to compromise. It's leading church leaders to compromise and even to the point of causing many to have to leave those churches in order to seek a faithful local church desiring to be obedient to Christ. So that's an external pressure. But then more recently, we also see that unity within many faithful local churches has been strained as well. As the government and the mainstream media, even the pride of Canada, which is its healthcare system, all of these have worked together to create a two-tiered society. And we're seeing that unfold before our very eyes. The, vac- uh, the vaccination is considered as virtuous. And remaining unvaccinated is being vilified then. And so, and we see this in, in the local churches. <clears throat> we see this in, in terms of this. So we need to acknowledge that people from both groups exist in the church, do they not? And they're Christ followers, are they not? So so we need to be sensitive to this. We need to understand that both the vaccinated and the unvaccinated are a part of the church and that they are equal. And we need to then confess as well and remind ourselves continually of this, this truth that we find in Galatians 2 verse 6, which is short and simple, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. And to take it one step further then, partiality has no place in a Bible-believing church. To read from Proverbs 28 verse 21... We read this wise saying, to show partiality is not good because for a piece of bread, a man will transgress. And we see this. We see this happening again in local churches. So-called Christian leaders are practicing partiality. They are not being impartial when they refuse to find religious exemptions for people facing both job loss and or being denied an education. And rather, these same leaders are are deciding, choosing rather, to bind the consciences of their sheep by recommending that they submit to the state's unjust and unlawful demands. And we need to recognize that they're serving Caesar for less than a piece of bread. They are compromisers. And so we need, to, we need to speak out against this. And at the same time, we need to exercise grace in the church. Exercise grace to one another. Not viewing each other any differently, despite what the outside world is, is propagating. It has no bearing on the truth 
because we know the truth and we know it from the word of God. And we must remain rooted in that. But a second confession must be made. And that second confession is this, that whether disunity comes as a result of external pressure or arises internally, both expose something. And that something that is exposed is that the biblical worldview in the church is being set aside in favor of worldly philosophies. And this is something that we cannot allow either. And so we take great encouragement from what Paul writes here in his letter to the Philippians as he seeks to calibrate our minds and hearts in order to exhort unity within the body of Christ. Now, a well-known theologian said this about these letters, the letters that we find in the New Testament. He said, there are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems in the church. Okay? So the letters to the churches address problems within the churches. To the Romans, for instance, Paul wrote to ensure correct teaching on the righteousness of God. So there obviously were very differing views, and he writes to correct, to correct the church, to make sure that they are understanding the righteousness of God correctly. To the Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that finds itself in a very immoral context, and he, he writes to address the factions that are found in its fellowship. And not only to address the factions, the divisions in the church, but also to address the chaos of the worship in Corinth. He then has to write a second time to defend his apostleship, while at the same time confronting false apostles plaguing the church. And so we easily see in both of those letters, there are problems, problems in the church. And to the Galatians... Paul writes to confront the legalists that are trying to introduce works-based salvation. They're trying to have, they're trying to add, in addition to Christ's cross, they're trying to add some of the laws, returning to some of the laws and add those to salvation. And I could continue on, we could go through each of the letters. We would recognize that there are problems that are being addressed and being corrected. Each of these letters identifies current issues as well. But we need to also be fair, because some of these letters are written to healthy churches. So not all of the churches are, are fumbling about, so to speak, but some of them are, are healthy and yet still in need of Paul's attention. So Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. This is a young church with a vibrant and influential faith in the region, and he Yet he needs to address some of the uncertainty that is recognizable about the Lord's return and it's causing tension within the church among the believers. And so Paul has to pay attention to that and give them instruction. And then we come to this letter even that we have before us, the letter to Philippi. Now, Philippi is a doctrinally sound church by all accounts. We see that the Philippians were grounded in the gospel. We know that they were faithfully uh, participating in 
Paul's gospel ministry. We see this in chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul describes them as partakers of grace in 1 verse 7. We know that they possessed a love for God. In fact, Paul continues to pray that their love would abound still more and more, even as they continued to grow. And we also know that through Christ, they were being filled with the fruit of righteousness. The text says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. So this was an ongoing uh, thing that they were experiencing. Paul also acknowledges that they were an obedient church in chapter 2 and verse 12. And in fact, he even refers to them as his joy and crown in chapter 4 and verse 1. He says that they had done well to share in his afflictions in chapter 4 and verse 14. And that they supported his ministry faithfully even when no other church would. We see this in chapter 4 and verse 15. And yet, at the same time, as we've read already, we know that external pressures were bringing suffering to the church, which we learned uh, a few weeks back was actually a grace gift given to them for the sake of Christ. And not only were they facing external pressures, but also there were internal problems that were challenging their unity. Externally, there were threats of persecution. We see this in chapter 1 and verse 28. <clears throat> and then there are also false teachers that are being addressed in chapter 3 and verse 2, where he writes, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the false circumcision. So certainly there were external pressures trying to influence the church, trying to infiltrate. And yet, there were also internal stresses. We learn about pride and ambition that was facing, that was, that was found within the church. In chapter 1, verse 17, those who were proclaiming Christ but doing out of selfish motivations. And now here in Chapter 2 and verse 3, specifically, again, he's, he's telling them that they, they are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And so internally, they are, are facing some issues as well that threaten the unity of the church. I've already said uh, a few sermons back that I believe that unity is one of the, one of the big themes in this letter that Paul is writing to the Philippian church. And yet here in chapter 2 and verse 2, we see Paul display a very pastoral heart. He desires that they would make his joy complete. And yet, while this is the imperative, and we would even say that this is the main verb of the text, this is really everything around it, it helps to develop it, we would at the same time say, it's not the main thrust of this text. Rather, the thrust of this text, the thrust of, of Paul's exhortation is for a unity that's undergirded with humility. And that's what he's driving at here. And he does so while at the same time pointing to Christ as the example and the motivation behind what he is desiring from them. And we'll get more into that even as I continue to, to preach from Philippians as we go from chap, uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We'll see the model 
the pattern for the church, even as we see it patterned in Christ's life. So I've decided to title this morning's sermon, Manifesting Gospel Unity. Okay, we want to make known gospel unity in the church, have it revealed, and I would say that in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 here, Paul is pointing to four manifestations of church unity, and he does this so that you will know how you must practice unity in the church to the glory of Christ. So four manifestations of church unity so that you will know how you must practice unity within the church. And for those of you that are taking notes, I've broken this into an outline of four parts. We'll look at two parts this morning, and we'll look at the next two parts, or the final two parts in verses 3 and 4 next week. So first, we'll take a look at the assets of unity in verse 1. Then secondly, we'll take a look at the necessary accord in verse 2. And there's a fundamental attitude that Paul teaches in verse 3. And then finally, he gives a key admonition in verse 4. So that's assets, accord, attitude, and admonition. So let's first take a look at these these assets, these things of value that help to make manifest Christian unity in the church. So train your eye back at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete. And so we know that even as we traveled through chapter one of of this letter, Paul is constantly pointing the Philippians, having their minds to turn back to Christ. He has exalted Christ throughout the whole first chapter. And here again, he is taking the attention really off of himself, even as we see in in verse 30 of the previous chapter, where he's talking about his, his experience, the experience that they saw in him and now here to be in him, and he's training their eyes back on Christ. And he begins with this connecting word, therefore, which really connects verses 27 and 28 to verses 1 through 4 of the second chapter. So he's exhorted them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've recognized that, that to be that they're to live in a manner, live as a citizen of heaven, essentially, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says that the way they can do that is by being unified, by standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together and for the faith of the gospel and that together they would in no way be alarmed by those that are seeking to come up against them. And then he continues this this exhortation toward unity, picking up in verse 1 and then continuing on. But we need to understand that even as he's using what we would call first-class conditions, 
We need to understand these first class conditions. There are four of them here in verse one. We need to understand what, what he is communicating to us. And so we ought not to understand these as hypothetical statements. It's not like he's questioning whether any of these four assets are present currently. But rather, he, what he's doing is he's stating something that they will know to be true and that they'll know it to be true experientially. This is something tangible that is taking place in the church. He wants the Philippians to recall and to affirm these gospel realities because they've experienced these, these things. They've experienced encouragement and consolation and fellowship and affection and compassion. And yet we need to properly understand what he is referring to when he uses these terms. So just to get back to these first class conditions, we ought to understand Paul as saying him in this way. If any encouragement in Christ, and you know there is encouragement in Christ, is really what he's saying. If any consolation of love, and there is, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, okay? So he's asking them to affirm experientially what they have, what they have seen to be true. If any affection and compassion, and there is, you know there is. You've experienced this. And we would simply see these really as being the benefits derived from, as Paul would say, to live is Christ. This is the benefit of to live, to live is Christ, essentially. These are the assets of living on earth as a citizen of heaven because of the gospel of Christ. These are the assets that are given to us. And so there's an appeal here to reflect on the divine certainties that radiate forth from an effectual gospel. And Paul is appealing to something that is going to be a common Christian experience. This is not to the individual, but this is for the church to collectively recognize and to acknowledge and to celebrate. And so let's look at these invaluable and indispensable assets that display genuine unity within the church. First of all, in verse one, that first condition that's given to us, if any encouragement in Christ, paraclesis, encouragement. This is a derived from a word that means to come alongside someone, to give assistance by offering comfort or counsel or exhortation. This is a consolation that's amidst difficulty being faced by the church and specifically for the purpose of comforting, of providing refreshment and even encouragement. And we see this very same word rendered by the NASB translators as comfort in 1 Corinthians 1 and verses 3 through 5, which read this way. And this helps us to, to better understand what Paul is getting at here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, 
so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And so in this way, we can see that there's a preserved and very visible unity that is displayed through the consoling and the refreshing within the body of believers. And this is not just theoretical. This is a tangible comfort. This genuinely is bringing comfort to the soul. And believers in Philippi have witnessed this not only in their lives firsthand, but certainly in the life of Paul as he has gone through many trials, much suffering, even inner turmoil with with others in the church. And yet they know that he has experienced this, this, this encouragement that he is speaking of, the encouragement in Christ. And so just as suffering for the sake of Christ was grace gifted to them, they were also being comforted and refreshed in Christ while they suffered. <clears throat> so the question then is, are you, are you experiencing this? Are you experiencing this encouragement, this, this comfort that Paul is, is really exhorting the, the Philippian church to? You know, I know that many in this church are suffering. Many of these in this church are facing difficulty. But we need to continually be reminding ourselves that there's no amount of worldly counsel, there's no amount of seemingly good news in the media that can hold a candle to the encouragement that's found in Christ. And so we continually need to be setting our eyes upon Him and recognizing His work in our lives, his encouragement and his comfort. For our comfort is, as Paul says, it's abundant through Christ. It abounds through Christ. So that is the first asset. Now the second asset that we read about is if any consolation of love. And here Paul uses a a different term, So although consolation and comfort seem to be very similar, there is some difference here as well. So he uses the word paramuthion, which is meaning an offering of solace afforded by love. This is an offering of solace afforded by love. And of course, even as we think of that as those who have been plucked out of this world, saved by the gospel, are our minds quickly can focus on the greatest demonstration of the Father's love. And we read about that greatest demonstration in Romans 5 and chapter 8. For God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's determination to give freely of himself, first to himself in the cross of Christ, and then certainly to others and also to give of his affections, ultimately resulting in our redemption and our reconciliation to him. So there's, there's a lot to, to be very encouraged by and even to praise God for. This consolation carries the purpose of persuading the believers. So Paul wants the believers to think back and be persuaded by what they've experienced 
They know that they have been the recipients of God's love and they've experienced this and now are being called upon to reflect on it as a way to further strengthen them and certainly manifest unity within the church. We see this just described a little bit further in Romans 5 and verses 2 through 5, which read this way. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. And then Paul goes on a little further to say that this is a hope which does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so let's recognize something essential to the nature of this consolation that we are on the receiving end of. And that is that this is a love, the love of God that has been poured into our hearts. It's his work. And through the gospel, through responding to the gospel, we experience both comfort in Christ and the consolation of the Father's love. And now thirdly, if any fellowship of the Spirit, here Paul uses a a familiar term to us, koinonia, which describes a close relationship, even a, a shared relationship, so to speak. And this is a term Paul uses also then in chapter 1 and verse 5 to describe the Philippians' steady partnership with him in the gospel. I, I just want to say this. You know, as the, as the child was, was crying, I glanced over and I may have appeared to have a frown on my face. I think it was more the, the reflection of the lights. The lights have gotten brighter in here. So I just want to do an aside here. That did not impact me at all. So I... <laughs> Okay, I just need to, anyway, I, I, I just wanted to say that. Um, so koinonia is describing a close association, okay? And Paul has already used this term. We're familiar with this term as he uses it to describe this partnership that the Philippians have with him in the gospel, in his gospel ministry. And so Paul is asking them then to consider the communion that they enjoy with the Spirit of God, the close relationship that they have been brought into with the Holy Spirit. This is a divine reality of every believer. And you too, friends, you too enjoy this same joint participation, do you not? For we know that the Scriptures say, and this is found in 1 Corinthians 12 and specifically verse 13, By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So this is a reality in the life of every believer. And so let's just pause here and take note of what Paul has done here in these first three, describing these first three assets. We need to understand that these first three assets that manifest unity in the church are essentially Trinitarian works, okay? All three persons of the Trinity are represented here. And this parallels what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13 and specifically verse 14, where he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
These are Trinitarian works initiated at salvation, which serve to unify the local body of believers. So we've taken a look at the first three. Now the final assets of, that, that are being described here in verse 1, where Paul writes, if any affection and compassion. So this term affection is used in the Greek to describe the inner bodies, the, the inner body parts of the person, including the heart. And so we need to understand that What he's describing here is generally seen as the seat of tender affections or emotions within a person. This is where mercy resides. And in fact, the same term is is rendered as tender mercy by Luke in, in Luke 1 and verse 78, where he describes the tender mercy of our God, the affection of our God. And so Paul is referring specifically to the affections of God here. And this tender mercy has been extended to believers, again, as I've already said, through the gospel. That's how we experience this affection. But not only do we experience affection, there's a second term here, compassion. This is God's display of concern over us in our sorry estate. This is a divine pity. This is a divine mercy that's being described here. And this same term, compassion, is translated in Romans 12 and verse 1 this way. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, okay, by the compassions, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Have you received God's compassion? Are you you the recipients of God's mercy? Ask yourself that. Do you recognize the extent of the mercies that have been given to you, that God has displayed? Now, Let's just consider this just for a moment. Even as we consider Romans 12 and verse 1, the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Let's, let's just flesh that out a little bit. First of all, let's understand that mercy is not being treated as you deserve. Right? Each one of us guilty. Guilty of sin. And yet, we are the recipients of God's mercy. By the mercies of God. Well, the mercies of God certainly are displayed in the component parts of salvation. So, for instance, your election before the foundation of the world is a mercy of God. Not that you deserved it, right? But that it's been given to you. Christ's atoning work is a mercy of God on your behalf. For you deserve death, right? The wages of sin is death, but rather Christ went on your behalf. His satisfying wrath, this is Christ's satisfying wrath over, uh, Christ satisfying the wrath of God over sin, I should say. This is a mercy of God, right? Otherwise, that wrath is placed on you. 
You being purchased, your pardon being purchased, you receiving redemption is a mercy of God. The effectual call of the gospel in your life is a mercy of God. You being regenerated, given a regenerated heart, being considered a new creation, being made a new creation is a mercy of God. Your conversion, the fact that you are changed, you're no longer the same person is a mercy of God. You've received both the gifts of faith and repentance, mercies of God. And having been justified, which is a mercy of God, means that you now stand legally before God and he sees you not as you were, but now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have a new legal standing. This is a mercy of God. The fact that you've been reconciled to the Father, the relationship's been restored. You're no longer separated as a mercy of God. You've been adopted into God's family. You've been brought into union with Christ, mercies of God. You've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. You've been sanctified positionally and then are being progressively sanctified. These are mercies of God. You're being preserved in your faith even as you sit here. This is a mercy of God. You're being interceded for continually by the mercy of God. And together with that, you are given assurance of your salvation as a mercy of God. And I could go on. These are the mercies of God. And if this doesn't bring delight to one's heart, I don't know what would. Wow, that's a long and mighty list of the mercies of God that you've received. And so it's no wonder then that we look at that Paul is describing here as being the assets that are given to us experientially. We, we have received encouragement and continue to receive encouragement in Christ. There is consolation of love, of the Father's love. There is a fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we have. And the affection and compassion, these are all the real works of God in the life of the believer. And yet, I know this. There are some who sit among us here that have not received the mercies of God and remain enslaved to sin. Remain pursuing their own interests, not having surrendered their life, their will to Christ. And you remain separated from God. You have not been brought into a reconciled relationship with God. In fact, you do not have peace with God. And as long as you remain in that sinful state, you will continually be separated from God. And yet, did God not send his son to address that situation? That's the remedy. For on your own, you are incapable of re being reconciled to God. There's not enough works that you could possibly do to be reconciled to God. For we know that reconciliation with God comes by grace through faith. That's how man is saved. And there's no other way. That's the only, there's only one way. And so we have to acknowledge that God sent his son to live the perfect life, to become the perfect sacrifice, so that he could go to the cross 
have our sin placed on him, his righteousness then credited to our account, and when we trust in him and him alone, and trust in that work which he has done, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, which in his rec- resurrection indicates that the power of sin has been defeated, that the enemy is no longer having power over us. This is a wonderful truth. Whatsoever why anyone would remain separated from God. I don't know why anyone would reject that salvation to be brought into peace with God. You know, so many people on our planet, the majority of people on our planet pursue worldliness, wrapped up in selfishness, and in that there's no hope. And they know, they know themselves that there's no hope in that, and yet they continue in that. They remain blinded to the truth of God's word, to the truth of the gospel. Friend, if that's you here today, I would call you to repentance. I would call you to turn from your sin and to set your eyes on Christ, to trust in him and him alone, to no longer trust in yourself and your foolishness, but to repent, to turn to Christ, to be saved. For we know that when one confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that he is raised, that God has raised him from the dead, that you too can be saved. There's a promise there. Respond to that. So we've seen that these are assets that manifest unity within the Christian church. And we need to set our minds on these experiences. We need to make sure that we're not looking at this world, but rather that this world would just grow faintly dim as we reflect on the glory of Christ, don't you think? And as Christians, I would encourage you, each one of you, to then meditate on even chapter 2 and verse 1 this week. Pray through this. What an amazing four conditions that are described, these real, these realities, these divine realities. Praise God for them. Adore him in, in your communion with him. Be thankful that he has provided these things for you. And not only for you, but for the collective body known as the church. Now, we very quickly need to acknowledge that we're in difficult times, are we not? And being that we are weak, we can very quickly find ourselves losing focus, taking our eyes off of Christ. But I have no doubt that if the Christian churches across this land would reflect on, meditate upon verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2, it would begin a correction for their minds would be set on the things above and not on the things of this world. And we would begin to see a shift immediately. And we ought not just look merely at people in other churches. Friends, let's examine ourselves. Let's ensure that we're not spending too much time in the mainstream 
absorbing ungodly perspectives. You can fill your mind with this stuff and it's not profitable. It won't be helpful to you in any way. So avoid it. I'm not saying to be altogether ignorant of the things that are going on in this world, but I am saying let's reduce the amount of time that we're in that nonsense. and Let's set our eyes, our minds on Christ. The same goes for social media. I know how social media works. I read something that somebody else has said, and then there's a temptation immediately in my fingers to respond because I've got an opinion, and you need to hear this. And not only are you going to hear this, but I trust that every single last person in the world is going to see my response. And so I desire to have my opinion known. No. Foolishness, right? Absolute foolishness. And so I would say, let's, let's take less time in that. It can still be helpful. It can still be useful. You can still do a lot of evangelism on social media, but keep it in, perfect, in perspective and keep it checked. So we don't want to be occupying soapboxes constantly. But here's a challenge. Let's hit the floor this week. Let's go to our knees. Let's remain prayerful in the midst of these difficult times. And let's do this adoring the Father in the name of Christ and on the basis of His finished work in the gospel, even as the Spirit provides you the words to pray. Praise God. Praise God. Friends, take delight in this one verse and do so this week. Be resolved to pray through this. I have no doubt that when we find ourselves discouraged by the encroaching worldliness all around us, that we together are encouraged and are being encouraged continually in Christ, just as Paul says. When we find that the world is unable to console us, you know where consolation lies. We are consoled by the Father's love and no other place. And what benefit, what we benefit from the fellowship of the Spirit, so much benefit comes from the fellowship of the Spirit. It's what, he, he cements us together as believers. We are unified in Him. And let's not forget that even Let's not forget even for a moment that the affection and compassion of God which result in us being benefactors of his glorious grace is something that we continually need to be thinking about. Let's not lose sight of that. These are indispensable assets that manifest unity in the local church. Celebrate these things even today in our fellowship. Talk about these things. How quickly we find ourselves right back talking about religious exemptions. And I know some of you are probably going to Approach me right after for this. But let's make sure that we're encouraging one another in Christ. Let's do the things that matter here and spend less time on the things that are of lesser importance. Let's then also take a look at the second point here. That second point being the accord found in verse 2 where we read, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So Paul is, is really expressing here what his choice would be if you were to give him a pastoral appreciation gift, because it's pa pastoral appreciation month or something, right? 
What, was, what would be the best gift that you could possibly give him? Well, that you would make his joy complete. That you would make the joy of your pastor complete. And he desires to realize the completion of something that he is then acknowledging that has already begun. This is a work that's begun. And that his joy would be rendered full. That it would be like a, a cup that is filled to the brim, even crowned. So that nothing would be left lacking, but rather that he would see his joy in full measure. That it would realize its full measure. And all that follows this imperative helps to explain the means by which Paul desires, the desire that Paul has can see fulfillment. So he asks that, he actually gives this as an imperative, make my joy complete, and everything that follows is how that can come to, to fruition. First, it's through conformity or agreement of mind. Literally, when we read be, by being of the same mind, we're reading that you may think the same thing. This is a mindset. And we need to also, again, just pause here for a moment because so often in Paul's letters, he's, he's very cerebral, right? He's addressing the mind. He's not addressing the heart, although the heart will be impacted even as the mind is first convinced. And so he uses this, this term for thinking. He uses this 10 times in this letter. He appeals to the Philippians to be a thinking church. And we see this in chapter 1, verse 7, where he writes, for it is only right for me to feel this way, to think this way. And then again in chapter 2 and verse 5, he gives them this imperative, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Literally, think this in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And again in chapter 3 and verse 15 and 19, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, think this way. And if in anything you have a different attitude, you're not thinking in this way, God will reveal that also to you. And he again uses this term in chapter 4 and verse 2, when he's talking about these two women who are experiencing some disunity. They're, they're not in agreement. And so he urges them to live in harmony. And the word harmony there could be rendered to live in the same way of thinking, essentially. And that they would do so in the Lord. So 10 times he's emphasizing how unified thinking will impact unified living. And this is a spiritual oneness then that he's describing. This is a harmonious disposition. And this is a reality in, in the church. What Paul is describing here is not only the same attitude of mind, but then he also goes one step further. This is also the will being moved, okay? So it's being convinced, but then it's also then leading into, into action. Now all that to say, we have experienced here at Grace Life, we've experienced tremendous like-mindedness for which we are grateful to God for giving that to us. Can you imagine, if, you, if I just take you back to November 2020, 
And you think about the time period between November 2020 when the restrictions came down after I arrived. I, that's when I first noticed it here in Alberta. But there was a definite shift that took place. And play through the months all the way to the end of June of 2021. What would it have been like at Grace Life had we not been unified? Had there been disunity? We don't even want to take our minds to that miserable place, would we? I can't imagine, but we can be so thankful, so thankful that God has given this church one mindset. That doesn't mean that every opinion is is exactly the same, but it, it does mean this, that we all understand that the primacy of the gospel in this church is paramount, and that we have a will to meet faithfully in order to proclaim Christ and Him crucified, while at the same time building up one another in the Christian faith. We are determined to give freely of ourselves, first to God and then to others, and giving of our affections, even as God has given of Himself freely to us. And so we could also recognize here very quickly that Paul is reaching back to the consolation of love in, in verse 1 here. There's a, there's a connection here that is being, uh, that, that he brings out. So maintaining the same love is made, possi- is made possible even as we recognize that we are being consoled by the Father's love. And then this second, um, the second aspect of accord in the church it appears only once in the New Testament, the one that, this word that he uses, and it's a compound word, sum fuxoi, okay, sum fuxoi, which means this. It means together and then souls in the plural, okay? Together souls are joined in souls, joined in spirit, and it's translated here in the NASB as united in spirit, united in spirit, and that spirit being plural. This is really going beyond the mindset now to include our whole being. We are united in our entire being with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and this being made possible by the fellowship that we first and foremost enjoy with the Holy Spirit. And as believers are in fellowship with the Spirit, so too do they enjoy the genuine harmony of our souls. And that's a wonderful truth. Now, there's a contrast that Paul points to here. Just to think about the opposite here for a moment, we know that as he enjoyed visits from Timothy and from Epaphroditus, he enjoyed their company he realized that it was pretty special to have those men in his presence even as he was imprisoned because he didn't have that same, that, that same um, unity of the Spirit. And he describes this in chapter 2 and verse 20 where he says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. So there's a, there's a limitation that he's experiencing in his incarceration. And that is, he's thankful for Timothy and Epaphroditus, but there's nobody that he is united in the same way with. And so that is 
That's an interesting thing to, to ponder there, that he actually points out the opposite for our benefit here that we would better understand. Now, this doesn't mean, this, this uni, unity or unification in the Spirit doesn't mean that, that we are not going to be without internal strife. That can take place. We can have differences of opinion. Let's admit it. We can easily be finding ourselves as being self-centered at times. And yet, we need to fight against those things. As MacArthur writes, he says, the Philippians will not allow inconsequential differences to divide them or hinder their service for the Lord. And so let us not then allow inconsequential differences to divide us or in any way hinder our service for the Lord. And now finally intent on one purpose. Intent on one purpose. Literally, this means thinking one thing. He's really repeating himself what he said earlier in the same verse. By being of the same mind and intent on one purpose, there's some repetition taking place here. As he's reminding the Philippians again to set their minds on one goal, on one purpose, and that is to be unified to be of the same mindset, and not only of the same mindset, but also that they would be united in spirit. Now, there's a wonderful passage in the book, of, or the letter to the Colossians in chapter 3 specifically, that I think really describes what this looks like as it plays out practically in the church. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 3, and verses 12 through 15. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is... Christian unity. This is unity being described in the church. This is what it looks like. And may we strive for this. Grace life, are, are we living in this way? Is this our, our goal? Or are there relationships that are in need of repair currently? Are there hard feelings that linger between people? Perhaps even factions. Maybe there's a rationalization of your actions and your attitudes to the neglect of recognizing and acknowledging the grace and mercy that you've received from God, right? How quickly we can turn aside, look away, and our attitudes and actions become less than Christ-like. That's not the kind of conduct that we want to continue in, certainly. And so, if that describes anyone here this morning, 
we do know there's a remedy, right? There's a remedy, and that remedy is found even in the very next verse that, that Paul writes here, where he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Humble yourself. Today, if any of this is present in your heart, if, if any of this is present in your, in your words, in your behavior, humble yourself before God. And we know that he will abundantly pardon. We know that he will restore, that he will refresh, that you too, again, can be comforted in the encouragement of Christ, that you can, again, enjoy consolation of love, that you can walk in the fellowship of the Spirit and certainly experience the fullness of God's affection and compassion. Those mercies that we talked about can be realized again. So we've looked at the assets and we've looked at the accord, that manifest unity. And next week, we'll take a look at verses three and four, where we'll see the attitude necessary to manifest unity in the church. And then he gives us an admonition. There's an action step that we are to take. And it's very important that we, that we look at that. Now, I realize that gives you a week to humble yourself, right? A week before you're going to come here, and I'm going to try to meddle. So, but don't wait a week. Do that today. If there's disunity, and I would even say, if there's disunity between you and any brother and sister of Christ, couldn't, not even necessarily in this local body of believers, Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a, a, a former um, acquaintance from, a, from another church. Whatever, if, if he or she is your brother or sister in Christ, be reconciled. Be reconciled to them. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are... So grateful for your word, and Lord, you, there's just so much, so much to take from it, Lord. We pray that you would, that you would write these truths on our heart. Father, that this week we would find ourselves on our knees, repenting where repentance is needed. Father, that we would be seeking reconciliation where there is disunity, and that we would be acknowledging experientially all that you have done in the work of salvation for, for each one of us. And Father, that when we gather together, whether that be in our homes or back here together as the, as the corporate gathering, Lord, that we would then celebrate these truths, that we would praise you for the grace and the mercy that you have shown us through your Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So thank you for this morning. Thank you for, for this letter that you have written to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.